chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. While you're turning there, let me tell you about a book that I was reading not long ago. It's called It's Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, written by a Calvin Seminary professor. His name is Cornelius Plantinga. And in that book, he defines wisdom this way. He says, Wisdom is the knowledge of God's world and the knack of fitting oneself into it. And then he says, by contrast, folly is a kind of witlessness with respect to the world. An example of folly is the opening video clip that we just saw. It's funny because it's just so contrary to the way things work. Stuck on an elevator? I get that. Stuck on an escalator? Well, as Pastor Jason might say, that's just nuts. Another example of witlessness uh, with respect to the world is the one reported by a couple of authors. Their name are Rachel Weinberg and Kristen Jardine in Biotechnology and Biodiversity. Weinberg and Jardine tell about an outbreak of malaria in the 1950s among one of the tribal peoples in Borneo. Health officials decided that the best thing to do, the wise thing, you might say, would be to spread to spray DDT over the area to kill the mosquitoes that carried the plague. Well, sure enough, they sprayed, the mosquitoes died. All that's good, that's a good thing. But there were some unforeseen consequences. One of those unforeseen consequences was that local cats began to die. Now, nobody knows even today exactly why they began to die. Maybe it's because, you know, cats saw these uh, gecko lizards that had been sprayed uh, in a sickened condition and began to, you know, cats will catch a thing and they'll sort of play with it. And maybe the cats were playing with the lizards and then got infected by the DDT and died. We're not exactly sure, but one of the repercussions was that the cats died. When the cats died, well, the rat population began to expand. Now you don't have mosquitoes and malaria, but you have rat population and you have things like typhus and the plague. And so health officials, again, once wisely decided that maybe they should step in to do something about this problem. So they went out and gathered up 14,000 alien cats. And in their wisdom, decided that the best way to get those cats into these remote areas of Borneo would be to parachute them in. I'm not going to go into all the details of the parachuting adventure, but let me just say that Operation Cat Drop is one of those unfortunate, might we say messy events, that's best left forgotten. You get the idea. Wisdom is a kind of practical knowledge, one that's in tune with the way things work in God's world. Folly, well, that's just, you know, parachuting cats or getting stuck on an escalator. Now, with those definitions in mind, I want us to begin our study this morning, Colossians chapter 2, with a couple of observations, uh, three preliminary thoughts. The first one is this. It's possible to be educated, even highly intelligent, and yet not very wise. In the book I just quoted from Alvin Plantiga, he talks about the man who had mastered three languages but wasn't able to say anything intelligent in any one of them. We've all met people like that, haven't we? On the flip side, one of the wisest people I've ever known wouldn't be considered bright by academic standards. Uh, His name was Jesse, 
And although Jesse had an IQ probably somewhere below 90, Jesse had this uncanny ability just simply to figure things out. I'm pretty sure Jesse never got stuck in an escalator. So let's agree. Smart people aren't always wise. And wise people aren't necessarily smart. Now there's a little sub-point I'd like to attach to that and apply to you and me as Christians. Christianity is not first and foremost about IQ. It's not about how smart we are. It's not about how intelligent we are. Christianity is first and foremost about living wisely in the world that God has actually made. You with me on that point? Second observation before we begin our study of this passage is is this. The second thing we can say about wisdom and folly is that there are some people who are knowledgeable, perhaps even wise, in certain areas, but not when it comes to God or the Bible. Um, There was a survey taken a number of years ago by the pollster George Gallup, and he reported this in a book called The People's Religion, And he discovered in his survey that fewer than half of all adult Americans could name Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as authors of the four Gospels. had nothing to do with their intelligence, nothing to do with their wisdom. They just didn't know. Only four in ten of the people surveyed knew that, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus delivered that sermon, that it was Jesus that preached that sermon. Only four out of ten people surveyed knew that. Only three out of ten uh, teenagers know why we celebrate Easter. Now, isn't that interesting? And then discovered that there was a surprising number of people that believed the motto, God helps those who help themselves, is from the Bible. It's not. Well, then... It doesn't come as any surprise to learn that another sociologist, her name is Miriam Murphy, was forced to conclude that there are many people in our country, in America, who have a Ph.D., say, in aerodynamics, but only a third-grade knowledge when it comes to religion. Now, if you substitute Ph.D. in aerodynamics, if you substitute TV personality or best-writing author, the best-selling author, then you get the idea. People may be knowledgeable and recognized and well-known in certain strategic areas, but when they speak about the Bible, and many of them do, it doesn't necessarily mean they know what they're talking about. That's my second observation. Third observation is this. The Bible takes wisdom Seriously, Pastor Rick has been doing a series, we did a series this summer on the book of Proverbs. So Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, there's a whole wisdom literature in the Old Testament devoted to wisdom. The Bible takes it that seriously. But in the New Testament, there there are major sections of even some New Testament books like James and 1 Corinthians and this book of Colossians that we're studying, especially the passage that we're looking at today, that also take wisdom very seriously. But the wisdom that it has in mind is a special sort of wisdom. It's wisdom as the knack of fitting into God's 
world. Now that shouldn't surprise us. That's what the Bible is here for. That's what the Bible is about. In nearly every case where the New Testament talks about wisdom, the goal is to contrast it with the world's worldly wisdom and God's wise wisdom, the way how things work, especially in Christ. Well, with those things in mind, I want us to take a look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And as I look through this passage, what I see here is a series of contrasts. God's wisdom, the world's wisdom. And what I see the Apostle Paul attempting to do is to help us to figure out how to make our way, our journey, through the contrast. Because we live in this, this twofold world. We live in the world where our church, our faith, our religious beliefs teach us one thing. And then we're bombarded by you know the personalities and the, the wise people from the world that approach us with another set of wisdom. Paul wants to give us a set of skills a way of thinking to help us navigate through these four areas. And so let's take a look at these this morning. We'll start in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, and it's those first three or four words, see to it, see to it. Now in the Greek New Testament, that's a warning. In fact, it's a pretty strong one. It could almost be translated, beware, watch out. You ought to see the red lights flashing when you see this, see to it. See to it right here. It's a warning. Now, a warning indicates there's some kind of a danger or a vulnerability that's going to take place here. And this is going to set up for us the contrast that we're about to look at. There's something that Christians need to be warned about. And this warning is going to provide a contrast between the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. Are you with me? Let's take a look at what is going on. In chapter 1, as Rick's been making his way through this series on Colossians, have you noticed the Apostle Paul has said some really remarkable things about Christians? And when you think about it, it's almost over the top. So, for example, chapter 1, verse 2, do you see that phrase there? Paul says, to the holy and faithful brothers, brothers and sisters, we could read. That word holy is the same word we get the word saint from. He's calling these people saints. Saints. And these are just typical people. This could be, you know, to the, what if I wrote a letter to you? To the saints in the Lakes Free Church. Well, that's what Paul is doing to these holy people. Now, he's also complimenting them. If you look down in verse 4, he says, We've heard some things about you. It's a good report we're hearing about you. As I've heard about your church, I've heard that you're full of faith. Do you see the word faith there? You're full of love. Do you see the word love there? And, and your, your church is just filled with hope. Now, those are the big three. Those are the cardinal virtues in the Christian life. So it's all these saints are there, and now they have the big three in their midst, the faith and the hope and the love. And then he says about them, oh, right about the middle of verse 6, he says, all over the world this gospel is bearing fruit uh, even among you, in other words, they're sharing their faith. This is a witnessing church. This is a church that's spreading its faith. It's a saint-filled church. It's got faith, hope, and love. They're sharing their faith. Now, here's where we set up the contrast. When you hear that expression, those three, those kinds of things, what do you think you should do? What do you conclude from those kinds of statements. Christian wisdom concludes this. Number one, that people that are described as holy, 
and as having faith, hope, and love, and as sharing their faith, you know what? They still need prayer. Well, now, isn't that interesting? You mean they're not perfect? You mean they're not beyond the need of prayer or help? No, they aren't perfect. They still need prayer. So Paul prays for them. You can see where he prays for them down in verse 9. First part of verse 9 says, For this cause I pray for you. Now the second thing wisdom will include about this kind of people, Christian wisdom that is, it will conclude that they need to continue to grow. And so Paul outlines all the different things he's praying for. Verse 10 says, We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, that you might please Him, that you might bear fruit, that you might grow, that you might be strengthened, that you might give more thanks for Him. In other words, there's this need for growth in every area of life. That's what Christian wisdom would conclude from what it saw in the opening of Colossians multifaceted growth. Now third, it would conclude, like we already saw in chapter 2, verse 8, that these people need to be warned. Hey, look out! You may have faith, you may have hope, you may have love, you may be saints, and you may have all this other thing going for you of sharing your faith, but you need to watch out. That's what Christian wisdom concludes. In other words, Christians aren't perfect. They need help. That's what Christian wisdoms conclude. On the other hand, the world include, uh, concludes something different. Whereas we would say, not perfect, just forgiven, would be the best way to describe a Christian. The people in the world, and sometimes worldly people in the church, draw a different conclusion about this group of people. Worldly wisdom concludes something like this. Have you ever heard this? When Christians say the kinds of things Paul has been saying in Colossians, they're either claiming to be holier than thou, some special group of people, uh, or they're telling an untruth. And because they aren't measuring up, this whole thing called Christianity, well, it's either hypocritical or it's untrue or it's just a sham. You people are claiming to be something you aren't. You ever heard that? That's the world's wisdom when they look at churches like ours and when they look at people like us. Who do you think you are? You've got to be kidding me. Now, I want to explore that just briefly. I want to explore the underlying difference or the fallacy of the worldview and see what you think with me about this. See if you think I'm right. There's a chapter in a book uh, written by C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite books of all time, called Mere Christianity. And in one of my favorite books of all time, one of my favorite chapters is this chapter called Nice People or New Men. And he captures the essence of what outside people tend to think about us in this chapter. He boils it down into a question. Here's the question. If Christianity is true, why aren't all Christians obviously nicer than all non-Christians? So let's do this this morning. This morning. All you people over here, you're Christians, okay? All right. I got bad news for you people. All you people over here, you're non-Christians this morning, okay? Now, according to this scheme of things, because these people are Christians, every single one of them should be nicer than every single one of you. 
And this whole group should be nicer than your group. That's the way the world tends to evaluate Christianity. That's what the world thinks, according to this question. Now, Lewis wants to respond to that. He says, what lies behind this question is partly something very reasonable. If our conversion to Christianity, he says, doesn't make an improvement in our actions, if we continue to be just as snobbish or spiteful or envious as we were before we became a believer, he says, then I think we must suspect that our conversion was largely imaginary. By the way, didn't Jesus say that you should judge people by the results? A tree is known by its fruit, Jesus said. So this point, non-Christians are on track. When we Christians behave badly, we're making Christianity unbelievable to the world that we live in. It's, that's just true. It's just true. That's the reasonable part. Now here's the unreasonable part of demanding results. Lewis puts it this way. He says, The world may demand not merely that each person's life should improve if they become a Christian they may also think that the world could be divided into the two camps Christians everybody else and that all the people in the Christian camp should be nicer than all the people in the second group and if they are not then there's something wrong with Christianity Now, what Lewis says is that's really not a legitimate, valid deduction from what Christians believe or teach. It's better to conclude, Lewis says, these two things. If Christianity is true, it's more reasonable to expect that any individual Christian would be nicer than they would be if they were not a Christian. That Jim the Christian would be nicer than Jim the non-Christian. That this Christian group would be better than it was if it weren't a Christian group. That's legitimate to conclude. It's a comparison from self to self, not a comparison with other people. Because, you know, we all come from different backgrounds. We all have different twists and turns. Uh, Some of us are more fallen than other people, if I can put it that way. Some of us are uglier in our... I have this poem. Beauty is only skin deep. Ugly is ugly to the bone. Beauty will fade away while ugly holds its own. Some of us are in the ugly camp. And that's our personality as well. Now, what Christianity teaches is that if Jesus comes into my life, Jim the Christian, ugly though he may be, will be a nicer person than he wouldn't be without me. Okay, and any group that claims to be Christian. Same, same claim. So Lewis uses the illustration of two people. He calls them Christian Miss Bates and unbelieving Dirk Franks. He says, Christian Miss Bates may have a kind, unkinder tongue than unbelieving Dirk Franks. That by itself doesn't tell us that Christianity works or doesn't. The question is what Miss Bates's tongue would be like if she were not a Christian and what Dirk's tongue would be like if he became one. That's the first point here. Any Christian would be nicer. And the second point is, if I'm a Christian, you ought also to expect that I be growing in my Christian life. 
that when I became a when I was a baby Christian, I had some issues that I needed to deal with that I should not still be dealing with if I'm a Christian of 10 or 15 years down the road. Christians, Lewis says those are legitimate conclusions that Christians can draw. Now he makes this final point. I think it's a good one. He says we ought not be surprised if we find among Christians some people who are just stinkers. Some people who are just flat unlovely comparatively speaking. In fact, he says, when you think about it, there's good reason to expect why we would think such people as that would turn to Christ in greater numbers. It's because they feel their need for Jesus the most. Didn't Jesus say, I came to seek and to save what was lost. I didn't come to the healthy. I came to those that were sick. So if sick people turn to him, then don't use that against the Christian faith, is what C.S. Lewis is saying. In fact, come to think about it, one of the things that people most objected to about Jesus doing his earthly ministry, Lewis writes, is that he seemed to attract such awful people. Publicans and sinners and tax collectors. And you know... He still does that, even today. Well, here's our first contrast. Worldly wisdom tends to expect and only to be satisfied with nice people in nice, well-behaved little groups and churches. Christian wisdom looks at things more realistically than that. It knows that God is in the process of transforming fallen and deformed and twisted men and women into totally new persons from the inside out, and that takes time. So in contrast to worldly wisdom, Christianity doesn't expect, nor does it teach that we will all have our act together. It simply doesn't say that. It reaches out instead to a world that's hurt, and broken and speaks a good news word, the gospel, good news into that world and says this, you don't have to be perfect to be or to become a Christian. You only need to be forgiven. I'll leave it to you this morning to decide which of these wisdoms is wiser. In the meantime, let's turn to a second point. A second point that the Apostle Paul makes is in the rest of this verse, in verse 8. Now, what the Apostle Paul does in this passage is contrast Christianity with every other... He uses the word philosophy. But the word philosophy in the Greek New Testament, you'll know this, phileo, love, sophia, wisdom, love of wisdom. The Greek word for philosophy that he's using here just simply means people who love wisdom. And what he says in this verse 8, let's just read it. See it, no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive love of wisdom, which depends on human traditions and the basic principles of the world rather than in Christ. Here's the contrast. On the one hand, it can be a tough one to swallow. Christianity, the things in Christ, is true. On the other hand, Everything that distorts or perverts or diminishes Jesus, what he says, 
ultimately will lead you into deception and finally into some form of captivity. That's a pretty powerful statement. That's a hard statement for our world to hear today. You mean all those other religions and worldviews out there, you mean that all of those ultimately lead me into captivity and only Jesus Christ is the real way? Well, here's where worldly wisdom kicks in. Worldly wisdom doesn't like it when we say that. And so, uh, quoting from a book by Tim Keller called The Reason for God. You might want to read that book, by the way. That's an excellent, excellent book. If you've not read Tim Keller's The Reason for God, one of the things he does in there is to quote some people in sophisticated New York, Manhattan, and some other places places in New York, uh, and what they believe about the Christian faith. So, for example, Blair, who lives in Manhattan, 24 years old, she says, It's arrogant. You Christians are arrogant to say that your religion is superior and to try to convert everybody else to it. Surely all religions are equal. All are equally good and valid for meeting the needs of their particular followers. Surely, she says, surely you get that. That's the world's wisdom. You ever heard that? Or take Jeff. He's an Englishman who happens to have taken up residence in New York. And he says it even more strongly. He says, religious exclusivity isn't just narrow, it's dangerous. It may be the greatest enemy of peace on this world. If Christians continue to insist that they have the truth, and if other religions do the same thing, then this world will never know peace. So right at the feet of religion, these people are addressing all the problems, saying, you're the problem if you would just quit claiming you have truth. Now, I drive home. You'll see this on this next slide. When I drive home, I commute to and forth from church to where I live. And every now and then, there's this car that passes me on the highway. I don't know if they do this on purpose. They just know I'm a believer and this is going to irk me. But they've got this coexist button. You see that up there? They've got the little uh, Islamic uh, crescent and star on the one side. And then on the other extreme side, they've got a cross, which is the end of the world and the end of the word. And then in the middle of it, they've got uh, sort of a Jewish uh, star there. And then there's the 60s peace symbol. And I think they just threw some other letters in there to make it coexist. Why can't you people just get along is what they're saying to us. Why are you always doing battle with one another is what they're saying. That's the, the, the question worldly wisdom asks of us. So how do we respond? Well, let me tell you what Paul is not claiming. Again, I'm going to quote from C.S. Lewis. Paul is not claiming that if you're a Christian... You have to believe that all the other religions in the world are simply wrong all the way through. If you're a Christian, Lewis says, and this came as a quite a startling discovery to him, he says, if you're a Christian, you're free to think that all these other religions, even the queerest ones, have some hint of truth in them. Now, he said he came from atheism, and, and what he learned, atheists have to believe that everything, every religion believe is wrong, especially at its core. But Christians are free to believe that all truth is God's truth. 
And so even those queerest, quirkiest little religions, there's some truth there. Now, it's God's truth, and it's packaged in a system that we ought not to follow, but it's God's truth nonetheless. All truth is God's truth. He doesn't let... So Lewis says, okay, we don't even have to believe that everybody's just totally wrong. But of course, he says... Being a Christian does mean that where Christianity differs from other religions, Christianity is right, and they are wrong. Now, he makes this comparison. Listen, it's like in arithmetic. There is only one right answer to a sum. All the other answers are wrong. Still, some of the wrong answers are actually nearer the truth than others. And so it is with religion. Some religions are closer to the truth. Some religions are far away. But Christians believe that the total package is true because of Christ. The Christian religion, that's what we believe, is the way, the truth, the life. Now, I've got to tell you that Paul isn't so much making this as a theoretical statement. He's making it as a practical statement. Paul inhabited a world a little different than ours. Now, we don't realize the impact Christianity has had over the last 2,000 years. Suppose you were to pull Christianity totally out of the world. What would that world look like And in some interesting ways, it looks like just the kind of world the worldly wise people are asking for today. So, for example, in uh, a book written by uh, Rodney Stark, who's a professor of social studies at Baylor University, he explains how Christianity conquered the world by making some of these comparisons. In one book called The Cities of God, he says, first of all, Uh, In the Greco-Roman world, what you need to know is before Christianity began to make its headway in the world, these cities were filthy and crowded and dangerous places. They were so dense, he says, that uh, to to get a picture of what it was like to live in one of the cities in Paul's day, imagine yourself living on a popular beach during spring break. All the people, all the little ants. All He said the big problem in Paul's world was not so much that people struggled with loneliness or alienation. The big problem in Paul's world and the cities of his day was there was insufficient private life. You couldn't go anywhere to find a secluded spot, even to have your morning devotions. It was a stinking place. The sewers ran right down the middle of the streets. Uh, People would just throw all flotsam and jetsam, and at night they would empty their chamber pots. I mean, they didn't have the kinds of sewage that we have today. Water, well, we've all seen the History Channel with the nice little picturesque, you know, aqueducts moving Roman water through the Roman cities. He said, well, that, that was nice, but when they got to the cities, they were actually contained in places where the water tended to turn stagnant and undrinkable and foul. According to Stark, Life in the cities in Paul's day was a filthy life, and it stank. He said, no wonder the ancients liked to burn incense. Sickness. Well, sickness was so, so pronounced. They didn't take pictures. They don't all have the little snap picture camera that you could take. Well, how did you identify yourself in legal documents in Paul's day? Have you ever thought about that? No pictures, you know. Well, how did they identify? Well, they had identify you by writing down, Jim has pockmarks 
on the left side of his face or he's lost an ear as a result of leprosy or he lost a hand or an arm. They would identify you by the ravages of the sicknesses and the illnesses of the day in large part. At night in the Roman cities, they, they weren't well-lit streets. They weren't well-cared for, well-policed well at night. He said, night fell over the city in Paul's day like the shadow of a great danger, diffused, sinister, menacing. Everyone fled to his or her own home. They shut themselves in and they barricaded the entrance. Think of the, the most foul picture of the world that science fiction has mustered up of what cities are going to look like in the future that's kind of what they looked like in Paul's day before the coming of Christianity now people of that day because this was a hard world needed religion they needed faith and so the worldly wisdom has never changed it's always said the same kinds of things the answer in religion is not one God, it's choices, multiple choices. Let's have a lot of gods. And so there was what Stark calls excessive pluralism. He talks about the poet, the Greek poet Hesiod. He says, claimed there were something like 30,000 gods. You want to talk about pluralism, I'm not just talking Islam, and I'm not just talking Hindu faith, and I'm not just talking... I'm talking 30,000 gods. They had pluralism. They had it to the max. Major cities, he said, well, they had 15 to 20 major gods and additional temples and shrines for others. In fact, every little home had its little shrine or two or three or four to the different gods that were worshipped of that day. He says, people lived in a universe teeming with gods. There were too many gods, in fact, too many cults, too many mysteries, too many philosophies of life to choose from. It was a bewildering mass of alternatives. And so what did they do? Well, it depended on your need. They began to manipulate the gods. I need a job. I need food. I need health. Well, there's one God over jobs, and there's another God that oversees food, and there's another God that oversees health. You get the idea. You put together just that right religious insurance package that contained all just those kinds of things that covered just what you needed, and everybody's little religion was just this mixture, this conglomerate of this thing that, that put together because there was no single answer for anything in Paul's day. Now, another part of the problem in Paul's days is that these gods weren't particularly nice gods. They were just like you and me. They were immoral. There was a motto in Paul's day, the gods do not give laws. And so they set some bad examples. They lied. They stole. They committed adultery. They betrayed people. They tortured people that went against them. And so... Uh, Stark says, since Hermes, one of the gods, steals, well, when you have a festival that celebrated Hermes, well, then let's just practice a little stealing as a part of this religious enterprise. That's the kind of world Paul inhabited. Now, what was the result of this in people's lives? Stark now fast-forwards a little bit to the next couple of centuries, and he says, let me tell you about two instances, two plagues that nearly wiped out Rome at one time. 
The first lasted 15 years and killed off from a quarter to a third of the Roman population. Later, he said there was a second academic, uh, uh, epidemic that struck, and at its height, something like 5,000 people a day were reported to have died in the city of Rome alone. Now, this is where Christianity made an impact. According to one church leader, his name is Dionysius, who was writing during this period of time, we know the church's response to both of these plagues, both of these epidemics. Here's a quote. It says, most of our brother Christians showed, here's the word, unbounded love. Remember the faith, hope, and love? They showed unbounded love, never sparing themselves, thinking only of one another. They were heedless of danger. They took charge of the sick. They attended to their every need and ministered to them in Christ. Many in nursing and caring for others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Hmm. Following the example of Jesus. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, read pastors there. A number of deacons, read elders there. A number of laymen, people that served in the kingdom of Christ. Now Stark wants to know what accounted for these actions of Christians and the contrast. Well, by way of contrast, he says, take the Roman physician Galen. Galen, a very famous man in his day. In fact, he was so famous that some of his observations and medical uh, prescriptions endured for about a thousand years after his time. People were still following Galen's advice a thousand years later. When the same plague that struck, the Romans responded to positively. You know what Galen did? He ran away. He went to his country estate in Asia Minor, And Stark writes this about Galen. He says, granted, this is only one man's response, but I want you to know, he says, that it wasn't unusual and it wasn't even discreditable given the times. It was what any, here's our word, prudent, wise person would have done if they had had the means to do so, unless, of course, they were Christians. Now, What accounts for the difference? Here's the contrast. Three things. Stark says the Christians believed that God loves us and cared how we treated one another. The Romans did not. Do you know Plato, the philosopher, wrote a philosophy called the Republic. And in the Republic, what he said to do with beggars was not to keep them in this great Republic, but to throw them outside in the native surrounding territory. Get them outside of the city gates. Pay no attention to them. The Greeks didn't believe particularly in mercy. They thought, in fact, that this whole thing was ignoble and it didn't pay off to be merciful. The second thing Christians brought to this equation was they believed that God rewards people in this life, what they do in this life, in resurrection. And so if I serve somebody and lost my life doing that, I may not get a reward here and now, but I would get my reward later. The pagans didn't believe that. According to Stark, the pagan gods offered no real salvation, and they certainly didn't provide an escape from mortality. Consequently, he says, for Galen and people like him to have remained in Rome to treat the afflicted would have required a bravery far beyond anything required of Christians who believed what they did. One last thing. 
third thing that was revolutionary about Christianity was that it actually brought moral imperatives on this whole world. For example, it said things like, love your neighbor as yourself. How horrible. We have a law. We have morality. How horrible. Love your neighbor as yourself. How horrible. We were saying things like, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We prescribe laws. We give people rules. How horrible. How awful that Christians would say that. Christians are saying things like, it's more blessed to give than to receive. How horrible. How awful. In this pagan world where it was forbidden to have a moral imperative for Christians to say that. And by the way, Christians didn't just say that. These weren't just slogans, according to Stark. He says believers did nurse the sick. They did support orphans and widows and the poor and the elderly and the blind. They did concern themselves with the lot of slaves. In short, he says, Christians created a mini-welfare system in an empire which largely lacked any social services at all. Paganism was utterly incapable of generating the communities that could motivate such kinds of behavior. Now, I'm just setting up the contrast here for the conclusion. Our conclusions go something like, for Christians, what people believe under the second point, for Christians, what people believe is a big deal. That's why we talk about doctrine. That's why we study our Bible. Based on tangible, empirical, visible, seeable evidence, it makes a difference in what you believe and in how people live. It's like the story of the man who heard the skeptic deny the possibility of miracles. I can't prove that Jesus turned water into wine, he said. But in my house, he turned drugs into and alcohol into food. That's the difference that Christianity can make. If Christian wisdom says not perfect, just forgiven, it also says when Christ comes into our lives, he gives us life and he gives it to us abundantly. Now, I'm going to leave it to you again, the second point. You decide which wisdom is the truer, the better, the wiser wisdom Paul is talking about. Now I come to this third alternative real quickly here. I need to move on. Real quickly, our third alternative is a contrast of beliefs. Now remember when I said Christians don't have to believe that other religions are wrong all the way through, that they only have to believe where it differs. Christianity is right and they're wrong. Now I've got to alert you. I've got to warn you. Everything that's said in this next section of this passage is it's just going to alienate somebody who's not a Christian. I'm sorry. I can't help that. But look what it says. Verse 9. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness of Christ who is the head over every power and authority. The word Christ, that's just the word Messiah. I've got to tell you that as soon as I say Jesus is Messiah, my Jewish friends are going to find that offensive. They're just going to find that offensive. They don't believe it. And when I say only in Jesus is God found in bodily form, I've got to tell you my universalist and Eastern religionist friends are going to find that offensive. They do not agree. 
And I've got to tell you, when I say Jesus is alive, that my atheist and secularist friends are going to find that offensive. They don't like it when I say that. And when I say that Jesus reigns, I've got to tell you that every other religion, every other political group, all my ecumenical friends don't like it. They find that offensive. And so now I'm stuck with the problem. How do I believe what a Christian believes in a postmodern relative generation? Is it possible to do that? Is it possible in this generation to be a postmodern and to believe this Christian stuff? How many of you know the singing group, the rock group U2? How many of you don't? Never heard of U2? Okay, well, that's okay. I didn't know a lot about them either. My son follows them, and I only know about them because of him. This is their singing group that started in 1976 in a place in Dublin, Ireland. And since they formed in 1976, this rock group has received more Grammy Awards than any other band today. They've been inducted, in fact, uh, uh, on the first try into the rock and roll Hall of Fame. U2 has been listed among the 100 greatest artists as a singing group of all time. It just so happens that their lead singer, Bono, is a professing Christian. Bono writes almost all of U2's lyrics, and he often uses religious themes and motifs when he's writing these lyrics. And so he was uh, being interviewed at one time, and in the course of the interview, he was asked this question. goes, Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers, this person said, giving Christians their due. Oh, yeah, he's got a place. But this son of God thing, isn't that a bit far-fetched? And here's Bono's response. Look, he says, The typical response to Jesus in our day goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy. He had a lot of things to say along the lines of other great prophets. But you know what, Bono says? Actually, Christ doesn't allow us to stop there. He doesn't let us off the hook with that. Christ says, according to Bono, No, I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm Messiah. I'm saying, I'm God incarnate. And people respond to that statement. No, no, please, just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric. We've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle eccentricity. But you mentioned the M word. Don't do that. Because, you know, if you keep doing that, we're going to have to crucify you. Jesus says, but actually, I am the Messiah. And at this point... Everybody just starts looking at their shoes and stammering, Oh no, he's just going to keep saying this. So Bono says, What you're left with is this. Either Christ was who he said he was, or he's a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking on the level of Charles Manson here. I'm not joking. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have had its face changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, well, now that's far-fetched. 
this point, I know it's getting harder and harder as we're contrasting the two wisdoms because we're being called to make a choice. Oh, by the way, Paul is doing that in this verse right here. Did you notice what he said in verse 9? He says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. All well and good makes no difference in that verse. Where the difference comes in is in verse 10. And you have been given fullness in Christ. In other words, Christ is real. Doesn't matter what we think about him. In God's word, wisdom says Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the solution. Jesus is real. That's what Paul said. The way we get in on that reality is in the next verse. When we can place our name in that, and you have been given fullness in Christ. And so Christians say we enter into the work of Christ. By believing in Him and in Him alone because we find Him sufficient. Okay, there you have it. Contrast between Christ's wisdom and the wisdom of the world. Which is it going to be? My guess is, if you've been following with me, that some of you are struggling right now. And maybe you'll find this little story from Tim Keller's book that I mentioned earlier just a little bit helpful in the process. Tells it about a woman coming up to him that describes a dark time in her life. A woman in his congregation, and she complained, I've prayed, I've prayed, God, help me find you. I've prayed that prayer over and over and over again, but nothing has happened. God, help me find you. And then a Christian friend suggests, well, why don't you try praying the prayer a little differently? Why don't you try this? Why don't you say, God, I'm lost can't figure it out don't know just don't know the solution you said in the new testament that you're the good shepherd and you go looking for lost sheep like me lord jesus come come and find me come and find me i'm lost and she says the reason i'm telling you this story tim because i prayed that prayer and he did I like that prayer. I like it a lot. Lord Jesus, come and find me. Lord Jesus, come and find me. I can guarantee you on the authority of the Word of God that if you'll pray that prayer, Jesus will. He will come to you. He will come and find you. And when He does, He's going to fill you with a new kind of wisdom a humble wisdom that reminds you that while you're not perfect you are forgiven because of him a satisfying wisdom that won't necessarily take away all the problems in your life but the life you live it's going to be more abundant than the life you would have had A defined wisdom that isn't as far-fetched as trying to believe that Jesus isn't who he claimed he was. A sufficient wisdom that you will never be able to exhaust, neither in this life nor in the life to come. Would you pray with me this morning?
Lord, I just, uh, my mind just goes to the woman at the well. Jesus had a conversation with her. She was drawing water. He began to talk to her about water and asked for a drink and then told her about the water of life. And she said, Lord, give me that water. Lord, I pray for your people today. I pray for myself. We've been talking about wisdom. Lord, give me, give us that wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.